So I'm going to pick up with uh, verse 13 of Luke 12. I'm going to read through a section we didn't look at last week that precedes the section we majored on last week. And it's the story of the rich fool. And once I finish that, we'll go into the section where Jesus answers, gives the antidote to the problem of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I've nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. A man comes to Jesus without any proof. He demands that Jesus not weigh evidence. Okay, he's not asking this man who comes about his, inherit, his, his brother's inheritance dispute. He's not asking Jesus, will you figure this out for us? Will you make sense of this and come to a just ruling? No, he knows what is right and he tells Jesus what Jesus needs to do. Tell my brother this. So he wants Jesus to execute judgment in his favor in an inheritance dispute. And Jesus declines. And knowing the man's motives perfectly, seeing with x-ray eyes into this man's heart like nobody else can, he warns the crowd and would have been humbling to be that man, makes an illustration of him. And he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And really this is the summation of the whole parable that Jesus tells be on your guard against covetousness because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Covetousness. There are various ways we could divine covetousness. Uh, Greek scholars offer this. It's some advantage which one possesses over another or it's an inordinate, unright desire for riches, a grasping and overreaching but maybe the best way to say it to us is the way that the New Testament often translates this Greek word, which is greed. And, and some of the word construction just means to, have, to want more of, to want more and more and more. You deeply desire more than you need. And getting that thing, that thing more of which you don't need, more money, a bigger house, a nicer car, a bigger IRA, it becomes your fixation. It takes the center of your desire and it effectively becomes an idol 
In Colossians 3, 5, Paul tells the church, therefore put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desire, evil and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's one of the few places I'm aware of where idolatry in the New Testament epistles is laid out. And Paul says, it's greed. It's greed for us. We don't worship Aphrodite or Zeus or Apollo very often. But this greed is the worship of things. So here we see the Holy Spirit is an amazing psychologist. He knows that, that we can see things and hear and and. and deal with things like paychecks and cars and potential promotions and beautiful guitars or uh, girlfriends or manicured lawns or Super Bowl winning teams. And, and we can think about these things and we can hear them saying to our heart things that only God should say. They become like God to us. And they say things to our heart that only God should say. They things like, say things like this, I will satisfy you, ultimately. We don't intellectually ever think that, but we feel that. I, I need this so much because it's saying, I will satisfy you. I will be your life. If you just have more of this money, you will find security. You will have safety you will be able to relax. You will have hope. You need me, says money, <laughs> says wealth. You must have me. I will keep you safe. But it's a lie. It's a lie. One pastor in studying, I came across, I thought he used a really nice analogy. He said, it's a, it's a lie like salt water is a lie. If you're in the ocean and there's no resources around and you're thirsty enough while you're at sea, you'll look around you and all you'll see is what you think is abundance. An ocean of water and you, you can't help but be drawn and think this is the answer. This is the answer. This is what I need. And if you're thirsty enough and desperate enough, you might guzzle down gulp after gulp after gulp. But instead of satisfying you, you'll become even more thirsty and you'll eventually die from it. That's what it is to have greed in your heart towards something, to want something that's not God, in particular wealth, You think it's going to satisfy you. You think it's going to be the answer. But it never is. And listen, we'll make this clear, especially later, but I just want to say at the outset, God's not against money. He's not against things. Everything in this world, you can find eventually a beeline to him in terms of creation. We either put it together like apple pie or it came straight from him like apples. He made stuff. He wants us to enjoy it. But he says, he says, listen, wealth is a gift and it's, it's a blessing and it's dangerous. He says, beware of coveting it. And he doesn't say beware of money. He doesn't say beware of wealth. He says, beware of covetousness. Beware of the love of and the great desire for wealth. 
Because when it moves ever so subtly into that place where only God belongs, where it whispers those promises of peace and security and joy and safety and hope, it becomes spiritual poison. Jesus says that not only should we beware of covetous, he, he says as an antidote, he says life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He's saying possessions and money are not what real life is. He's not saying we don't need them. We shouldn't use them. He's saying that's not where real life is. And to illustrate this, he tells a simple but profound story. This landowner, this parable about this man, he's rich already at the beginning of the story. I I, I didn't even notice that until I read this again. I don't know if you guys missed that. But I've missed that for, I don't know, 45 years. I've been hearing about this. The land of a rich man. That's a clue to us. The man has what he needs already. He's already rich. He's already been blessed with an abundance. And he experiences an exceedingly massive windfall of crops. I mean, it's, it's hyperbolic, this story. If this parable was a contemporary parable, Jesus might have said, one day he struck oil and he knew he was set for life. This man has so much that it will last him till his death even his old age. And so he builds up more storehouses to keep it all. And he knows, he says, he can stop working immediately and live off of his wealth. He says, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But then interrupting his wildest dreams coming true is a really, really huge dose of reality. The Lord calls him a fool. And in this culture, fool had a special meaning. And it's the same meaning we see in Proverbs. A fool is someone who lives as if God were irrelevant. Either didn't exist in their theology or their philosophy of life, or it didn't functionally exist even if they gave him credence and said, yeah, I believe in God. He, he has no real functional place in your thinking, in your decisions, in your heart. That's a fool, God says. Someone who lives as if this is all there is and all that's worth living for. The scriptures say again and again through the Proverbs, through the Psalms, that's a fool. That person is a fool. And death comes to this man because death is the great alarm clock of the fool. In Psalm 73, there's a story of a man who doesn't care anything about God and is successful and prosperous and wealthy. Not too different from this man. And death comes to him in that psalm. And God says that he wakes up from this life as if waking up from a dream into a nightmare. Death wakes the fool from his dream of this world. And this man must, that very night, God says, give an account for his soul to his creator. This very night, your soul is required of you. And God throws water in his face to alert him even more to his foolishness. Who will get all this wealth now? Like, weren't you even, I mean, even if you were being pragmatically wise, don't you know that you can't count on tomorrow and put your hope in this world? Jesus says this is the reality, not just for this landowner, but for anyone who replaces a heart that's to be focused on God and neighbor with a heart focused on riches for the sake of self. 
He says, so is the one. It's not just this landowner. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, this is interesting because Jesus isn't talking to a bunch of rich people. And the crowd's not a bunch of rich people. I mean, there's probably one maybe wealthy guy, that guy who's involved in that inheritance dispute at the beginning of the story. But everybody else is probably middle class to low class in in Maine in terms of their income. But Jesus tells it to everybody. And we, we should wonder, why is he telling that to everybody? Like all these not rich people. And we'll get to that in a second. But he works immediately to the antidote where I think the reason we can understand why he's telling it to this crowd. He, he gives the answer to this or the solution to this parable because immediately he goes from this parable into this speech. There's no in between that parable and this speech he's about to give. And he said to his disciples, therefore, meaning because of everything I just said to you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. And we do have this, Brando, if you're able to push this up, it should be verse 22. There you go. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where there's no thief approaching and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Stay dressed and ready. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. And what I want to do for the rest of the time is use these two sections, the parable and Jesus' answer to the parable and, and try to come to some conclusions about what does it mean in these texts to seek the kingdom and find all that we need added to us, what it means. So the, there's three answers I want to walk through. 
First, I think that this text shows that it means that we resist the lie that life consists in the riches of this world and instead we live aware of God as the one to whom we must give an account. We resist the lie that life consists in the riches of this world and instead we live aware of God as the one to whom we must give an account. The man in the parable was firmly rooted in this world and in this world alone for himself and himself alone. He never thanks God in this parable. He never gives a thought to anyone else, anyone needy, any neighbor. He, his whole conversation is to himself and his whole plan is for himself. So there's no acknowledgement that these blessings come from God. And these blessings are sourced not in himself and his ingenuity. They're not sourced in nature randomly blessing with a good rain crop or good rain. It's, it's just him. It, for this man, life consists in what he can see and feel and hear with his eyes. And more than that, it consists in what he can enjoy for himself and only himself. And by the end of the story, he is rudely awakened to the reality that he has given short shrift to the only essential reality, which is God. That he is a creature and he has a creator and he's denied that through this whole story. And it's a horrible reversal in the, in, the, in the story before God, he has everything. He has everything and a merry heart, but no regard for God. And by the end of the story, he has nothing. He has nothing, not even his bones. He has nothing but a selfish heart and no way to escape God. So we have to resist the lie this man believed. He believed he could ignore God and prosper. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Jesus calls him a fool. And instead, the Lord calls us not to that foolishness, but to know that our master may come for us at any moment and to be found serving him and ready for him. I didn't print the text, but a few verses at the end of this chapter, Jesus says, actually, I love this passage when it comes to these end times questions. He tells the disciples, your master will come at an hour you do not expect. The only thing we can know about the return of Christ is that we won't know when it will happen. He will come at an hour. He says to his disciples, his followers, I'm going to come back at an hour you don't expect. So be ready at all times. In verse 35, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants to whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That's crazy. You know, when I read a passage like that, I am just like, I mean, I'm not saying you need to be this. Sometimes pastors can reject and you get this emotion from them. You think, oh, I gotta be like that and I'm not like that or whatever. I I don't mean to lay that on you, but I just wanna share a delight with you. When I read that, I'm just like, this is real. 
Like, this is God. Like, this is who God is. Because in my wildest dreams, I know this is who I need God to be. I know that there's no greater God than this God. Who would say, when he comes back, he's going to dress himself for service and, re- and you'll get to recline at the table and I'll come and serve you. Like, what's more beautiful than that? Like, don't you know that your heart needs God to be that God? Because I do. Like, I need him to be that kind of God. Not just the God who is high and mighty and ready to judge, but the God who's longing to return so he can serve me. I don't deserve it, but that's the most beautiful thing in the universe. And so that must be what God is because God must be the greatest thing. And that's the greatest thing, that kind of God. Look at our Jesus. He spends his years on earth serving, curing, healing, teaching. Then he spends his death serving, paying the penalty for our sins. Then he goes to the Father's right hand and he spends his time at the Father's right hand doing what? Serving, interceding for you moment by moment so that you won't give up on him so that he can preserve you. And then he says when he returns, what's he going to do? What's his plan? Serve you. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Your heart has a hole in it that's shaped for this God. And you know it, I think. I hope you know it, but I think you know it. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. That's worth a tattoo. <laughs> two, number two, we resist a fixation on the possessions and necessities of this life. Instead, we trust God's promise to take care of us. Number two, we resist a fixation, a single-minded obsession with the possessions and necessities of this life. Instead, we trust God's promise to take care of us. This man in the parable, he was fixated on what he could get out of this world and he could get a lot and he was thrilled about it. He was probably really brilliant in Jesus' mind and studious or diligent, industrious. And he was thrilled because he, he made, it worked out for him for a time. And most of us, we're not anywhere near where this guy was. Like we're, most of us, at least in our conception, We might be more than we think in the West, but the way that we consider wealth, the way that we consider ease or prosperity inviting wealth, most of us are not ready to say, no need for me to work anymore, eat and drink and be at ease. We're set for life. None of us are typically in that category. Um, but, but, But here's the thing, and this is why I think Jesus is willing to say this parable to a bunch of middle class or low income people. Being needy And being poor or paycheck to paycheck, it doesn't leave you necessarily any less fixated on possessions. Right? Like, listen, this man fixated on possessions in a way that filled him with 
God-denying merriment. This man fixated on wealth and possessions in a way that filled him with God-denying merriment because he had all that he could desire. But Jesus tells us in, in the antidote to that parable that we can be fixated on possessions in a way that fills us with God-denying anxiety because we don't have an abundance in, in front of our eyes. We don't have everything we want. We don't see it all. So I think Jesus is trying to say like, you know, you can be really wealthy and be obsessed with possessions and wealth and be really happy because your, your hope is sated. Or you can be really desperate and anxious because your hope is in possessions and you don't see all that you want to see. So he says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If you're not able to do a thing as small as that, why are you anxious about the rest? You of little faith. It's a God-denying anxiety. It's an anxiety that says, God isn't going to provide for me. God isn't going to come through. In some ways, they're living in the same world that that rich man is. He's like, God's not real. I got it all. I'm set. And the, the people Jesus is talking to and us can be like, God's not real. I'm totally, totally doomed. The one equalizing principle is that to both parties, God's not real. He's not dependable. He's not going to come through. In the rich man's case, he doesn't have to worry. In the poor people's case, all they can do is worry. But the point is, in both situations, God's absent from functional thinking. And the rest of what Jesus says is essentially this. You anxiety-crushed people, don't you know there really is a God who is here for you, who knows your needs and is going to help you. Don't you know that you have a heavenly father? Don't you know that he loves to provide? Don't you know that this whole world, open your eyes, every living ecosystem, lilies, sparrows, it cries out, God provides, God provides, God sees and provides. It proclaims the glory of God as a faithful provider. And he says, you, you fearfully and wonderfully made image bearers. The ones that God says, I mean, do you ever think about Psalm 139? It says, fearfully and wonderfully made. It's not talking about David like, Lord, I'm, I'm fearful and wonderful when I think about, you know, you making me. It fills me with reverence. No, he's saying God made you in your mother's womb with reverence. He cared about with, I mean, this is God having reverence and sacred sobriety and concentration and carefulness. God thinking about you and making you with a reverent heart about you. He's not worshiping you, but you're his image bearer. He knows there's no greater honor he could give to a creature because he knows his own worth. And he's placing something of that on you. And so he's, he's reverent as he makes you. He cares about you. And he didn't stop caring about you just because you came out of the womb. 
And Jesus is much kinder to these people than to the rich young ruler. He says, oh, you of little faith. He's gonna care for you. And I love that. I'm not trying to make excuses here, but I'm trying to highlight his compassion, his gentleness, and his patience. He knows we struggle to believe this. And he says, he's going to care for you. He's going to care for you. So for many of us, coming to grips with the fact of a faithful father who promises to faithfully fulfill our needs is a crucial antidote to being free from the prison of hoping in things instead of God. Knowing that he is going to be faithful is a crucial antidote. Not saying, I don't need things. I don't need them. I don't need water. I don't need clothing. I don't need houses. I don't need to enjoy anything in life. I don't need to enjoy relationships or cake or music. No, I'll shut off all enjoyment and all need. No, 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 no. He's not saying that. He says God knows you need. He knows you need. And he, I think there's an implication here that he, he also wants to do more than just sustenance give to you. Just look at the beauty of these flowers. I'm not preaching health and wealth, but I just think God is, he's not a cheapskate and a tyrant who just enjoys throwing hard bread, crusty crackers to his people and half drinking water. Where's kids? And this brings me to my last point, that this kind of hope in a God who's gonna faithfully care for us amply and, and wonderfully as we need it not necessarily our, our, you know, our wildest dreams of wealth on the earth, but with kindness and reverence and con- consideration, he's gonna care for us. That having that hope, it, it not only frees us from anxiety to come back to us, it's not only an antidote to anxiety, it actually frees us to become generous. It actually frees us to give things away and to care for others, just like our father, which is where we go next. So the third principle is that we resist hoarding more than we need. And instead we use our wealth to serve God's kingdom purposes. We resist hoarding more than we need and instead we use our wealth to serve God's kingdom purposes. There's a beautiful passage in 1 Timothy 6 uh, that shows this principle of how confidence in God's provision motivates us to be the means of his provision for others. How confidence in God's provision for us motivates us to be the means of his provision for others. Verse 17 of chapter six of 1 Timothy. Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Life indeed. First, Paul asks along with Jesus, I think, the crucial question at the bottom of this story, at the bottom of this chapter, it's not how much do you have? I don't think that's, that's the main point. 
It's where's your hope? Where's your security? Is it in what you have? Is it in what you don't have? Or is it in the God who will provide for you? Paul tells to the rich, you evil rich people. No, he he says, fix your hope on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy and be generous because God provides for you. Not your riches. They're a means and they're uncertain. There is a here today gone tomorrow about riches, but there isn't a here today gone tomorrow about God. In Hebrews uh, 13, there's one of the most beautiful passages is from the Old Testament repeated in Hebrews 13. For God has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And you guys are familiar with that passage probably. You've probably, maybe some of you have relied it on hard times or told it to other people who are going through hard times, which is we actually should do. But if you microscopically look at that passage and you go to the immediate context, what's amazing is that passage in that particular place in Hebrews is about material provision. It says, keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because money's evil, you don't have needs. No, he says, for God has promised, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Don't be possessed by your possessions because God is going to be there for you. They come, they go, God will not abandon you. And you can rely on him to give you what you need for as long as he has you here. And there's something else in this Timothy passage that's beautiful, that not only should God be our hope for provision, he says that God supplies us with things to enjoy. I'm just so glad the Holy Spirit wrote that. Isn't it encouraging to know that not only does God provide you with food and clothing and shelter, he wants you to enjoy it. He meant for fried chicken to not only give you protein, but to taste delicious. He meant for the peach yogurt to not only fill you with probiotic and calcium, but to allow you to contrast the creamy yogurt a little bit sour with these little chunks of beautiful yellow fresh fruit that are perfectly ripe, a little bit sweet, and you bite into them and there's a tiny bit of tension when you bite it, but then it's smooth as you go down. It just melts in your mouth. Sorry if you don't like yogurt, but I'm just trying to say you can substitute apple pie or whatever you want, but he meant for some of you, uh, the home that you have to to just, you know, I've I've used Rob's example in this before because Rob and I have talked like, Rob looks at the house that he's provided and, and he sees so quick, quick, clearly through it to God's hand. And he loves it. It's a beautiful little place he's got, but it, he just, when Rob looks at his townhouse provision, he just sees God's faithfulness so clearly. It's a love note from God. And I know that for you, that there are possessions that you have, even cars or homes, that the spirit will sometimes convict you are just love gifts from your father. And he gives you a grace and an ability to enjoy them without being worshiped by them. The Proverbs says, the Lord gives riches and adds no sorrow to it. Have you experienced that before when you just get some beautiful gift or you have some, 
you have some property or a car, and you just know this is a gift from God. There's not a sadness to it. There's not a complicated, weird guilt. Is this, you know, because I get that too. But this is designed so that we can relish God through our possessions, not worship the possession and put our hope in it, not grasp with greed. I need this thing. And knowing that he is generous and knowing that he wants us to enjoy, that that's his plan for us on this earth, not just suffering, because that's also in his plans for us, appropriately needed trials to shape us, but also blessings to enjoy. God says, be generous. I got you. I got you. So richly and reap richly. I got you. Be rich in good works. Share what you've been given with those in need. And he says that especially to the rich in this passage. That's another thing if you watch the theology of money in the, in the New Testament. Paul goes to great lengths to say to the poor, I am not looking for the poor to give out of what they don't have. I'm looking for people who have more to share with people who have less so that there would be equality, he says in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. But God promises to all of us that as we sow, we reap. And so he says in verse 33, 34 in our passage, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that doesn't fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus and Paul tell us there is a direct correspondence between our generosity with those in need now and our experience of God's generosity, both now and eternally. The rich landowner would be poor in eternity. I don't know what that means for him eternally. It doesn't look good because of his, you know, this is a hyperbole. We don't have to answer every theological nook and cranny of, of that parable. But the point is he has no reverence for God and no love for his neighbor and he has nothing when he meets God. All of his hope is back on earth and he's not coming back to it. But when, when born out of trust in God's care for us on earth, we give from what God's given us, from what we can share, not to put ourselves at great risk unless we sense that call, which sometimes God gives great faith to people who are very little, like the widow who gave of her poverty. But if you look at Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, that's, that's not his directive. When we give out of our supply of what we don't need, not only does he bless us now, freeing us from dependence on possessions, not only strengthening our faith and our experience of God now, it creates in, in ways that we, we, we don't get all the blanks filled in about this. We just get the promise. It creates a lasting and eternal reward. And we're not told exactly what that riches means, what that reward is. But we can only, we, we should be sure of this, that it, whatever that reward is, it is a means of increasing our eternal joy. Whatever that reward is, it is a means, it increases our eternal experience of God and joy forever. A short-term gift now creates a lasting, eternal increase in joy forever. Jesus says, 
Therefore, don't, don't hoard for self-indulgence. So I, again, be careful. You don't hear what I'm not saying. He's not saying don't enjoy things. Don't never, ever, ever eat out. Don't save for college for your son. Don't put away for old age when your working years have dried up and you'll need money to live on so you cannot be a burden to your children. He's not saying don't do those things. But even here, he would say, don't save in such a way that you're saving. I think he, I don't know how else to read this, that you're saving for unnecessary luxury and thereby neglecting crucial needs that God puts before you to meet. I don't know how else to make sense of Jesus saying, so it goes for those who are rich towards themselves, but poor towards God, except to say that Jesus, I don't believe, would be wanting us to save for unnecessary luxury for ourselves and neglect crucial needs that God puts before us. And I can't tell you without getting into probably big trouble with you right now and maybe even trouble with God, I can't tell you exactly how that needs to be worked out in your life between you and the Lord. Because sometimes he does give people blessings. Abraham was rich. David was rich. There are rich people. There are rich Christians. And they do amazing things. They create businesses and jobs. And they, they take much of their wealth and give it away and create more wealth for others. So I don't want to get, you know, I, I don't want to put my hand in the dog dish of that between y- you and the Lord and get my hand bitten off. But I want to tell you, Jesus is saying, minimally, don't give in to selfish hoarding. Don't, as he says in Matthew 6, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth when you see needs around you. And so we see this picture, this parable of a man who had far more than he needed, who kept it all for himself, and he cared nothing for the needs around him. So Jesus says, beware of greed. It builds up storehouses of possessions for yourself when there are poor and needy folks or necessary responsibilities around you that could be blessed by your, essentially your oversupply. You have enough and you have enough for yourself and you have enough to share. So share. When there are children at Gospel Haiti who need sponsors, when there are missionaries reaching the lost in remote places, you can't get to, but your support can. And, and also, this is self-consciously difficult for me to say, when your local church needs help. In the New Testament, the local church is a priority for giving. So when there are needy folks in your own neighborhood who might be provoked by the kind of faith that isn't just talk to them. I'm not saying talk isn't good, it's essential, but, but, but your talk is adorned by a gift for a neighbor in need that tries, like, makes them ask the question, man, where is your heart? It, is, it does not seem like it's, it's rooted in this world. It seems like your heart is rooted in somebody else because it's beautiful that you do this for me. And Jesus says, that's right. Where your treasure is, there your heart really is. So, listen, I, I, I think as I close, I don't have more sermon here, but as I close, I, I really sense that this is, this is a time for us to pray as we close, to just come to the Lord in prayer. Because the crucial issue is that God wants our hearts not our cash. And if God has our hearts, that will work itself out as an extension. 
Because thanks be to God, we're not saved by our giving. We're not saved by getting this right. We're saved by Jesus so that we can repair this and get this right. Thanks be to God that that the power of Jesus' blood and the commitment of the Spirit's renewing grace changes our hearts. Thanks be to God that our ultimate hope is not not just in the possessions of this earth, but how well we do stewarding the possessions. But our ultimate hope is in Jesus who died for our greed and gave his spirit to make us generous. So let's spend some time going to him, going to him and ask him to search us and help us with this. And, And perhaps maybe for some of you guys, you just need to be comforted this morning. Like the Lord just needs to say to you, hey, you're, you're being faithful. I think that would be true of many of you guys that the Lord would just want to say, keep sowing, you're being faithful. I see compassion in you. I see generosity in you. Just keep sowing. Maybe there are some who need correction and oh man, man my hope is lodged in this thing that I'm just dying to get and wish I had. I don't know, but he knows.